there are more than 2.4 million prisoners in the United States of America. Since the year 2000, the total number of women serving in the United States has increased by 50%, while the male prison population has grown about 18%. It is now estimated that one in every 30 men will spend at least some time behind bars. According to the Innocence Project, between 2.3% and 5% of all U.S. prisoners are innocent. The American prison population numbers about 2.4 million, so using those numbers, as many as 120,000 innocent people could currently be behind bars. So prepare yourself as we go in to the prison series. Today's episode, we're going to be talking all about strange prisons from all around the world, from ones that are just odd and horrific to ones that can only be described as true hell on earth. We're going to open up with the Kukikai, translating literally to chicken poop prison. The Kukikai was in use and still stands in location at the seaside town of Lam Singh. And it was built in 1893 after the French occupied the region during a part of the Franco-Siamese War. Built from red bricks, this small tower of anguish was only about 14 feet long and 23 feet high. It featured rows of slit-like windows along its side for the smallest amount of airflow possible, simply to keep somebody from suffocating. Prisoners would be locked on the ground floor underneath a long chicken coop. The perforated vents above the inmates allowed the chicken feces to continuously rain down on the inmates below, torturing them consistently night and day. This punishment was often reserved for locals who did nothing more than resist the French invaders who wanted to use their home as a battleground. And this wasn't just meant as a humiliation tactic to be shit on 24-7. This also had drastic health degradation issues. Chicken feces has a suffocating odor of ammonia that most people can only withstand for a few minutes. The strong smell can cause headaches, vomiting, and actually lead to a severe abyss of depression. As the ammonia from the chicken poop enters the human body, it reacts with your body's natural water to produce ammonium hydroxide. So this harmful chemical actually causes severe adverse reactions, which include uh, getting a horrific sore throat and respiratory issues leading to lifelong problems of breathing. Kukikai also isn't the only instance where chicken poop has been used to harm people. Actually, in 2013, so not that long ago, city officials in Canada attempted to rid the streets of homeless people by dumping a truckload of chicken shit and spreading it through the homeless encampment. Naturally, this was met with a lot of criticism, besides, you know, just showering innocent people in feces. The chicken poop ploy was exposed by the online newspaper Abbotsford, today in a column by homeless advocate James Breckenridge, who said the city is ramping up efforts to disperse the camp on Gladys Avenue, which otherwise may have gone on too long if the internet didn't do its thing. Thankfully, after posting this, people jumped on board and was like, yo, the city official is literally spraying people with chicken shit. This is insane. Here's an actual quote. 
Besides the dumbness of using chicken material in light of bird flu, and then the big avian kill we had, there are not many years ago. The camp is besides one of the major thoroughfares. There's a set of railroad tracks, and this is a path that most people use to cut across it. So you've got all this material being gone through by all these people and tracked all over the place in the city. So like, yeah, it's just such a stupid idea. The Tyree reported they received an email from city manager George Murray, who took full responsibility and said he was deeply sorry for the actions. The city will remove the manure from the site and working closely with our community partners and the people impacted over the next few days to collectively resolve this issue. But it's just it just goes to show like you know, they, they knew that the ammonia from just chicken shit being spread out in the open would harm these homeless people. Uh, and, and so, of course, French warfare were stuffing people in brick boxes, basically, and filling it. You just get these little tiny windows to try to breathe through. It's so just absolutely insane. But this is, a uh, it's almost nothing compared to the Mongolian death boxes. So let's dive into that <coughs> little context before the death boxes. Mongolia is absolutely filled with air quote detention centers that are designed for people awaiting trial. It's a pre-game jail and the government is not afraid whatsoever to send anybody to these centers. In 2008, a child was given a seven-year sentence for stealing a box of chocolates and a bottle of wine. In the Mongolian capital, Ulaanbaatar, up to two-thirds of detainees accused of crimes were imprisoned without any court date or any judge authorization. Back in 2002, Amnesty International released a report about Mongolian prisons, which outlined the terrible treatment of the inmates. One of their shocking reports explained that it's not unusual for detainees, not even, not even convicted inmates, just people awaiting a trial, would starve to death. Galeg Basan, a human rights activist who heads the Center of Protection of Breaches of Human Rights, which is CPBHR, <laughs> had this to say. Mongolia is a democratic country and has been for 22 years, but this democratic transition has not yet extended to jails, she explained, having been arrested five times herself during the course of her decades-long career as an activist. She speaks from first-hand experiences of the discriminatory and corrupt legal apparatus. According to Basan, the most marginalized people in the Mongolian society tend to slip through the cracks and get lost in the country's pretrial chambers that are even more dangerous than the post-conviction facilities. She explains, people who have committed a horrible crime can pay to avoid detention, but people who have committed a petty crime go to jail because they don't have any connections. Though Mongolia law states that citizens cannot be arrested without due process, the United States Embassy Human Rights Report for 2011 found out that this just simply wasn't happening. And this is all horrible, but even this modern-day nightmare pales in comparison to the Mongolian prison system during the early 1900s. In 1918, Roy Chapman Andrews visited Urga, Mongolia, and visited the town's jail, and what he encountered traumatized him and absolutely shocked the world. 
Andrews was astonished to find that inmates were being kept in what were essentially coffins. Prisoners were stuffed in three by four foot wooden boxes, and those boxes were kept inside Urga's dark dungeons. The prison was surrounded by 15 foot high sharpened timbers, and the captives were given food via a six inch hole in the box. And the rations they received were meager, to say the least, and their human waste was washed out of the box only once every two to three weeks. The cells were so small that prisoners couldn't lie down or sit properly, and even then, they handcuffed them inside the box. And these boxes were supposedly uh, people awaiting execution, but most people died within the boxes. The temperature in Urga can sometimes drop to 60 below zero, and prisoners would only sometimes receive a single sheepskin to stuff inside the box. So it was very common for inmates to just freeze to death. If they, however, did live long enough to actually see a trial, then their limbs would be deeply atrophied from lack of movement and remaining in such a cramped position. So even if they somehow got free of this horrific torture, they would never be the same again. Just medieval dark ages nonsense. Just You have to just be evil to do this to people that in some cases aren't even fully convicted. All right, but don't think we're so much better here. We're going to we're going to talk about Pelican Bay, which um is very often referenced on one of my personal favorite TV shows, The Shield. Uh, Pelican Bay is home to over 3,000 inmates. Some Pelican Bay prisoners spend more than 22 hours a day in the prison security housing unit, otherwise known as solitary confinement. The SHU, the security housing unit, is designed to keep communications with others in prisons and the outside world to a minimum. It was specifically designed to hold the most violent and disruptive inmates in California's prison system. Inmates in SHU live in a cell that is only 7 by 11 feet, which, I mean, after hearing about the Mongolian boxes, my knee-jerk reaction is like, well, that's not too bad. But you gotta, I mean, 7 by 11 feet, that's just a little bit taller than the average man, you know, that 7 feet. Uh, they're always accompanied to and from the showers and exercise yards, and phone calls are off-limits unless there is an emergency. Inmates in SHU aren't allowed prison jobs, and they cannot participate in programs. So you just sit in this fucking hole for 22 hours, and you might go outside for two. Maybe. Armed guards monitor six pods of 48 cells at once from central control booths through perforated steel doors that make it easy for guards to see in, but difficult for prisoners to see out. Cell doors are controlled remotely, and prisoners can be allowed out to shower or exercise in each of the designated 8 foot by 20 foot pods solitary exercise yards. So just a little bigger than their prison cells, but at least it's outside. After Pelican Bay State Prison opened in 1989, guards eager to assert their dominance over the inmates established a culture of violence, as you do. Inmates in the security housing units were beaten, tied, left naked, or often subjugated to staged gladiator fights by guards who would intentionally release two prisoners from enemy gangs and then shoot at the prisoners after they began fighting. Von Dorch, who was serving a 10-year sentence for grand theft and whose mental illness had only worsened since being moved to SHU, as it would, was taken in April 1992 to be bathed by guards after smearing himself with feces. 
five or six guards subjected Dorch to a bath in scalding water while he was handcuffed, leaving him with second and third degree burns from the water, all while having to fight off drowning. On July 1st, 2011, several prisoners at Pelican Bay Prison joined a total of more than 6,000 prisoners elsewhere in California prisons, staging a hunger strike in protest over the restrictive conditions and extended periods of isolation. They demanded warm clothes and a handball for use during their one hour a day in the outside yard. The ability to make one phone call per week, adequate food, and the possibility of reconsideration of their long periods of isolation after several years of good behavior. This original strike lasted over two weeks and was repeated again in October of the same year of 2011. Inmates resumed the hunger strike a third time three, two years later on July 8th, 2013, alleging a failure to uphold promises on the part of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, with upwards of now 29,000 prisoners across all of California joining in the hunger strike. The strike brought the first widespread media attention to the security housing units in California. The scale at which prisoners were being kept in such conditions and the fact that there were prisoners who had been kept in solitary confinement at Pelican Bay for literally 20 years shocked the country. Pelican Bay State Prison is a notorious maximum security prison that is known widely for its harsh living conditions, high levels of gang activity, and controversies surrounding the use of its uh, security housing units, the solitary confinement. Despite the challenges faced by inmates at the prison, Pelican Bay offers a variety of re rehabilitation programs and services for its inmates, including educational and vocational programs, mental and medical care, and religious and spiritual support. However, the prison also faces significant challenges, including the issues of overcrowding, understaffing, and allegations of the staff misconduct and corruption. And the future is actually in the balance. It's really uncertain. There's a lot of advocates just calling for its immediate closure, and others calling for a reform to improve the condition for the inmates. Like, yes, they should serve time, but do we keep them in a seven-foot room 22 hours a day? Does that actually serve a purpose for rehabilitation? Does that actually make someone better? and make them not want to repeat a crime, or does that just devolve their mentality? Cesar Vila wrote this essay in 2013 while in his 12th year of solitary confinement in the Pelican Bay SHU. Like thousands of others in California prisons, Vila had been placed in solitary indefinitely after just being swept up as a gang member on questionable evidence. So a guilty by association sort of crime. Here's what he wrote. Nothing can prepare you for entering the SHU. It's a world unto itself, where cold, quiet, and emptiness come together, seeping into your bones, then eventually the mind. The first week I told myself, it isn't that bad, I could do this. The second week, I stood outside in my underwear, shivering as I was pelted with hail and rain. By the third week, I found myself squatting in the corner of the yard, filing fingernails down over coarse concrete walls my sense of human decency dissipating which each day. At the end of the first year, my feet and hands began to split open from the cold. I was bleeding all over my clothes, my food, and between the sheets. Band-aids were not allowed, even confiscated when found. My sense of normalcy began to wane after three years of confinement. 
Now I was asking myself, can I do this? Not sure about anything anymore. Though I didn't realize at the time, looking back now, the unraveling must have begun then. My psyche had changed. I would never be the same. The ability to hold a single good thought left me as easily as if it were a simple shift of wind sifting over tired, battered bones. Our next and last prison of today is the Maracaibo National Prison from La Sabanata, Venezuela. Humberto Prado, director of the Venezuelan Prison Observatory, has stated that more than 3,700 of Venezuela's most violent offenders were packed like sardines into La Sabanata, a prison built to house no more than 700, so 3,000 more than capacity. Of this number, he estimated that 192 of them were children of the very same inmates inside. The Maracaibo National Prison was a filthy, dangerous, overcrowded, and neglected facility that took way too long to get shut down. There is a prisoner-to-guard ratio of 150 to 1. The director of Prison Observatory also estimated that 80% of Venezuelan prisons are actually run by the armed inmates themselves. The prisoners formed a rigid, gang-controlled hierarchy. Poor, low-status inmates were forced to pay the more powerful inmates just to secure a place to sleep, which would often just be the floor. And if they wanted water, many prisoners had only corroded and toxic bathroom pipes to sip from. In this environment, many inmates profited from exploiting and abusing others. A constant among prisoners was, only the strong survive. The strongest and most powerful prisoners eat and live in comfortable surroundings, making money off others and having others do their bidding, while in contrast, the weakest and least powerful prisoners suffer all of the worst deprivations imaginable of prison life. They sleep on the floor in crowded passageways. They would clean other prisoners' cells and toilets, their belongings immediately stolen. They'd be forced to fight or be beaten and raped. This exploitation is a blatant absence of a rational system of prisoner classification. Venezuelan prisons often mix unsentenced prisoners with sentenced ones, healthy prisoners with sick ones, and first-time petty offenders with murderers and rapists. One of the most glaring violations is the blatant mixing of juveniles with adult inmates. Riots have broken out time and time again in the prison's blood-stained history. In 1994, 108 prisoners were killed in a particularly brutal riot that left the prison scorched black. In 2013, 16 inmates were killed during a riot, and the ones killed were decapitated and disemboweled. This led to a government raid that found large stockpiles of assault rifles, grenades, and even endangered animals like macaws. In the words of former Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, Sabanata was the gateway to the fifth circle of hell. The fifth circle of hell is where the wrathful and sullen are punished for their sins. From the masterpiece that is Dante's Inferno, the titular character and his guide Virgil are transported on a boat by Flagius. In the circle, they see the furious damned fighting each other on the surface of the river Styx, and those who have fallen from fighting are gurgling just beneath the surface of the water. In 2013, after a riot killed 16 inmates, the Maracaibo National Prison was finally closed. 
There are currently plans to reopen the prison as a museum for citizens to visit the sites of the famous massacre and learn about the historical running of a corrupt prison sentence. It is known that Macho Edwin put up a fight and refused to leave the kingdom within La Sabanata upon its closure, for Macho Edwin was the prawn in Maracaibo prison at the prison's closing, or the leader. He was first imprisoned in 2006, but was soon released in 2007 and was sent back for committing a triple homicide. And uh, the, the prison still hasn't been opened yet for the museum, as uh, people are kind of like, I don't know, maybe we just tear it down. I don't know if we need to go. Why don't, you know, why visit it? <laughs> Uh, so that's my that's my grouping of some some prisons to open up uh, this prison series. It's going to be dark, but I hope there's some interesting facts there. I hope there's some things that I don't know maybe open up some eyes to how much prisons need to be reevaluated each year and reformed because clearly what we're doing is not working on a whole. But all right, that's all I got for you guys. I hope you have a good week, and I will see you next Monday.